The thing is that sometimes, you know, people have talked to me as if I fell down from the moon when I did that movie. But I was not a worse actor before that casting. Obviously, you grow when you do something like that. But it's not like that all of a sudden I made a pact with the devil and became this monster of an actor. That was Clay Spung, and this is Nordic Portraits. Clay Spung is an acclaimed actor of both stage and screen, who after building a strong career in Denmark, burst onto the global scene with his leading performance in 2017's Cannes Palme d'Or winning film, The Square. He has since been in high demand, landing the titular role of Dracula in the latest BBC series, as well as starring in The Burnt Orange Heresy, The Last Vermeer, and the much-anticipated upcoming epic, The Northman, joining a cast including the likes of Nicole Kidman, Willem Dafoe, and Alexander Skarsgård. Clace, welcome to Nordic Portraits. Thank you so much for having me. Clace, I wanted to start by taking you back to the year 1992. Yes. Where Denmark was about to achieve the impossible and win the European Football Championship. We did. We did. That was that was uh, incredible. But that summer was also special for you as you'd just received word that you'd been accepted into the Danish National School of Theatre. That's right. That was what that spring and summer was all about, I remember. It was like... I was euphoric because, I mean, to get into that school is sort of a lot of people apply to get in there and they don't take that many. So I was I was just flying that spring. But the cutoff date was 25 years of age and this happened it five was, days before your 25th yes, birthday. Yes, I think, as I remember it, I mean, back then they were like saying to people, you can't apply if you're more than 25. And it was when I realised this the year before that I sort of knew, okay, I have to try and, and do this now. Because I was super scared of trying because I was I was very much afraid of, you know, that letter where it sort of said, thank you very much for coming, but no thanks. So I, I don't think I actually, I just tried to put it off as much as I could. And then all of a sudden someone said, do you realise that when you're 25, you can't actually get in? And then I sort of applied when I was 23. And I got quite far in the process, like, you know, this three-step sort of something. I got to the last test or something, and then they went with other people. But that was sort of enough for me to sort of think, okay, this went well enough for me to sort of try next year again. And then I tried one more time the year after and made it. What was your relationship like to acting up to that point? Well, I mean, it started out in high school for me, doing your that high school musical drama something every high school sort of seems to do. Um, someone said, would you like to, to join in and, and be part of this? And I was like, uh, no, I've never done any acting. Why would I do that? And they said, come on, we think you might be right for it. You might be good. And then I all right, I'll, I'll have a go at it. And it went really well and it was a pleasure and I loved it. And and then I sort of tried to get myself into all kinds of little projects, you know, just amateur stuff after that, improv stuff, little plays here and there. And I mean, but, you know, having a normal job on the side, I mean, working in a bar or in a kindergarten or whatever you do in the beginning of your 20s, 
So it was sort of, um, it was something I did as a hobby. And then at one point someone said, so have you ever thought about taking this seriously? And if you have, would you like to get into one of those schools? And if you do, you have to start working it now because you'll be too old in a year. So I think, as I remember it, it was like mid-April when they sent me the letter saying, you're in, and 10 days later I turned 25 or something. That must have been one hell of a summer. It was, and as you just said, we won the Euros, and it was just... And I, I, I remember it as it was... You know, this country is not famous for really wonderful weather, but that summer, I remember it as three months of 25 degrees and sunshine all the time. It's probably not true, but uh, that's how I remember it. But I'm really curious where this nous for acting came from or what sparked your interest in the first place, because it's not as if you came from a family that was particularly absolutely, in the arts. No, absolutely not. No, I'm sort of the odd one out or the black sheep in that department, because, I mean, my parents both sort of worked in offices and, and had, you know, office jobs and... I actually did find out just before my grandfather died that he had been doing, you know, sort of a little bit of amateur something when he was like 20. But it was not any, I, I hadn't heard anything about it for all those years. So, so there has been probably a slight little bit of something, but it's not, no, it's not something that's in my family at all. I understand you moved to schools quite a lot as a child eight or nine different primary schools. Yeah. I just wondered if you've reflected on that particular period of your life and how that might have shaped your choice of vocation. Mm, I'm, I'm actually not entirely... I, I remember that whole time as a bit of a mess because it was like, you know, moving all the time and new friends in school every Monday almost. But perhaps what I like to think is that I got quite good at adjusting. I probably did so much adjusting all the time to a new environment and new people that I got quite good at it. That's mainly what I think about it now. But I will also say that back then I do remember at one point where I was like, I had to move again and I was like, can I please wait to go back to school? I'm so fed up with, with changing all the time. Can you just give me a week off or something? Why did you move so often? Um, it was it was just, um, you know, you my parents got divorced. I, what happened was that we moved to a city and we stayed in an apartment while my father, he was building the house that we were supposed to move into. So we moved there and he did that. We moved into that house. I changed schools. And then my parents got divorced and I moved to another part of that town. Then my mother met someone new. I moved with them to Copenhagen. Then I actually sort of got kicked out by that new guy. Um, we didn't like each other much. So I moved back to my father, who'd now moved to somewhere else. And I think today, when I look at people and friends, if they get divorced, they make sort of an effort to try and make sure that the kids can perhaps stay in the same school. But I don't think that people thought much about that in the 70s. It was just, oh, we're breaking up now, and I'm going to move to that part of the country, and you're going to be... And so it was a bit of that. And um, I actually don't in any way think that it was anything evil it was just that's just how you did it back then and and you just thought okay we're splitting up okay I, i've got a new job now it's in the other end of the country i'll, I'll just move there i'll take place with me and uh okay he's not 
well here so you can move back to you or whatever, that sort of thing. What did your parents think of you enrolling in drama school? I think my mum's always been big on art and theatre and film and all that. So I think she was sort of absolutely cool with it. I think my father was more sort of not so much that he thought it was a crap thing to do, but I think he thought he was going down a very sort of insecure path. I mean, where you're sort of like, can you actually make a living doing this? And I have to say, obviously, he had a point because, I mean, there has been periods and, and stretches of my career where it's hard to make ends meet and you don't know where your next rent is going to come from. But, I mean, that's the business, isn't it? That's being an actor. It's going up and down. And I'm, I'm actually not sure who said it, but some other fellow actor said, listen, if you're an actor and if you are working whatever, which film, television, theatre, doing voiceovers. I mean, if you are using your instrument that way, you are hugely successful because it's a tough business and there are far too many of us for the jobs that are up there. What do you remember of your father's reaction to your final year performance at drama school, a production curiously titled A Bucket of Eels? Well, I'm really, really sorry to say this because it's not... He left at intermission. Um, he said it got too hot in there and he was feeling... He was not feeling well. But the fact was that um, there are circumstances that it actually might be sort of semi-true, but I think what happened was mainly that I was buck-naked for the entirety of that show. I was sort of like living in a tree. I came onto stage from eight meters up or something, climbing down this tree, absolutely no clothes on. The only thing I had on was like mirror shades <laughs> and a belt with a quite big knife in it. But apart from that, buck naked and covered in mud, climbing down that tree. And then I stayed that way for the rest of the show. And I was like very physical with everybody. So I was like trying to shag all of them uh, and, you know, being quite sort of monkeyish in my behavior on stage. And I think, I mean, I don't know if you can say this on your show, but I mean, I think there was an opportunity to look straight up my asshole if, uh, if you were in the right position. And perhaps he was sat in a position where he could do that. <laughs> And I think that got a little bit too much for him. So he didn't come back. Also, the thing was, I, I actually really loved the set for this because it was like in a quite small theatre, but what they'd done was they had built walls inside the theatre. So we're sort of in a cube. And now we were saying, this is actually the reality of this. We're not sort of trying to say anything. And then... They had been out into some wood or forest and then they had gotten like, I don't know how many tons of, you know, leaves and stuff that you just, I mean, what is on the ground there? And they just took all that and put it in the room. And then they took like eight quite big trees and they put them in there as well. So we had our own little, it was like looking into an aquarium or something, just life size. I mean, it was weird. And, you know, it started to rot while we we were working there. I mean, at, at one point we came after a weekend and you had all these little flies. 
But uh, we we just enjoyed it. We, this seems real, and it started to smell as well. So, but but obviously that all worked in our favour, and therefore it also it smelled in there, and it got humid. So perhaps he was warm, and perhaps he didn't. Yeah, we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. We'll give him the benefit of the doubt. I mean, I think he actually did it one more time for something else. Left at intermission. At that point, he was not well. But then I said to him, listen, I mean, for those shows, I could sort of see him in the audience and I could sort of, when we came back after intermission, I could sort of, fuck, his seat is empty. He's left. What a disappointment. And so I had to say to him, listen, if you come, you have to stay. It's not working. I, I, I get totally thrown by it and you can't do that. So in the future, and he was like very apologetic and said, listen, I know it's happened. It's not going to happen again. And obviously I want to come and see what you're doing. So, so it didn't happen again, but I was quite um, affected by it when it happened. I was like, whoa, this is heavy. Hmm. This is sort of saying, fuck you. This is not very good or this is boring or I'd rather sit in the bar and have a beer. And so... It was actually my girlfriend at that time when it happened the second time. She said, are you sure you're all right with that? And I said, yeah, it's fine. I mean, if he doesn't like it, it's all right. It's okay. And then she was like, are you absolutely sure you're fine with that? And then I sort of realized, fuck no, I'm not fine with that. I need to say that to him. And then I said it to him and then he understood it and, and it didn't happen again. Um, I don't think he was big on theater, to be honest. But I think, you know, for the stuff that I did for films and television, I think he enjoyed that. And I think he was, uh, in his own way, quite sort of proud of it. I hope to think he was. Mm. You mentioned his concern around the instability that comes with acting, which as a parent is 100% understandable. But you did, in the preceding 20 years leading up to the moment of the square, which we'll get to, you did in those two decades build a very steady career in film and television yes. and stage, both in Denmark and Germany. And thank you for saying that, because there are so many interviews that are sort of saying, so are you really annoyed that this thing with the square didn't happen before? And I'm like, so are you asking me because you think my career was so shit that I should be annoyed? Because it wasn't. I had exactly the kind of career you have as an actor with ups and downs and you do this and then there's nothing for a bit and then all of a sudden three things happen at the same time, which always seems to happen. And I was working, you know, as an actor for all those years and I was not taking on another job or something. It was absolutely a career that I would have settled for. And whatever happened since has just been crazy. But um, thank you for saying what you just said because I... I I have sometimes had to fight some people that I've talked to. Are you saying that everything that happened until there is just crap? Because it definitely wasn't. I did really, really meaningful stuff up until that point. Mm. You mentioned how competitive it is as an industry. To my eye or, or ear, your language skills seem to be a major point of difference. I'm, I'm curious how this secret weapon of yours hadn't been unleashed earlier in your career. Well, perhaps I did not do so much to do something about that because I, I did not go over to Hollywood and sat in a hotel room for three years and waited for the phone to ring. I always had a feeling that 
at one point it might come in handy that my language is good. So I've always kept it up to a level. But I never, I think what I thought, you know, I totally admire what, for instance, Nikolai Costovaldo did, because he just went straight out of drama school. We went to the same drama school and you just couldn't see his ass for his heels. He was just out of the door the second he was done. And he was just dead set on breaking through. And he did. And it's amazing what he's done. But I think it takes a stomach to do that because I think there have been years of waiting where you're just like, whoa, what the fuck is going on? Nothing's happening. And I always think I thought, okay, I just, if it happened, it would be great. But it was not something that I was, I had my mind set on. I was just more sort of thinking, okay, now I'm done with drama school. Let's go out and let me just get really good at this and just work and just, and then obviously at one point you sort of realize when the first time there's someone calling you from Germany that, wow, if I could work there as well, my market will just be so, so much bigger. Because, I mean, there, there's so much more going on there. We're just a very small country and nobody speaks our language. So we can't really just... The export of Danish theatre and film has been really incredible in terms of nobody understanding a, a word of what we're saying. So I always thought, I'll just do my thing here and, and see how it all happens. So I didn't do too much to go out internationally until something came from Germany out of the blue. And then I realized, wow, when we do one television show in Denmark, they do 200. There's just so much more work down there. So if you could just get your foot in the door there. And that's when I decided to try and get a German agent and I got one. And then at one point I thought, okay, that's not the only thing I've got going for me because I actually probably have a better English than I have German. So I thought, okay, can I just try and see if I can make a little bit of way for myself over there? So what I did is I took this monologue, this one-man show that I've done since 2002, The Evil, based on Yan Giyu's novel, and I translated that into English. And then I booked a stage in London for a week, and I just invited all the agents that I could find in that book you had back then, right? So I just sent everybody an email saying, listen, please come and see my show. I'm looking for representation. And so I think 15 people came or something. And I think I got offers from seven or eight of them. And then I went with the one that I liked the best and I still have him, Simon Sharkey, who I'm very, very fond of and very happy with. So that's when I started to become active myself in terms of using my language skills. Perhaps I should have done that earlier. I don't know. It seemed to me that it was important to sort of put my feet on the ground and just start working the trade and the craft and see if I could just become a decent actor before I started to take it somewhere else. I think that's sort of the idea. Were you fearful or...? Perhaps it was that as well. Perhaps there's an element of, you know, sort of saying, okay, if you reach for something big and you don't get it, it might be a disappointment. But if that's the truth of it, it's something that I've managed to hide quite well. Because it, it's not like I, it doesn't ring a bell when you say it. P perhaps I was not fearful of that, but perhaps I was just thinking, okay, this is a safe environment here in Denmark to start just nurturing this instrument that is me as an actor and, and, and just getting in there. Because, I mean, obviously four years of this kind of drama school that we have in Denmark is amazing, but... 
I don't think it's till you actually get out there that you start really piecing it all together and getting your actor to be who he is. So you've got the craft under your skin and managed to establish yourself here. What do you remember of that moment when you first heard about the opportunity to audition for Ruben Ostlund, the esteemed Swedish yeah. director? Well, that came from a casting director here in Denmark um, that I know quite well. So she phoned me and she said, Clays, I have this thing that I think I definitely want to see you for. And the director has asked to see you. And I said, oh, cool. And what is it? And she said, it's like this Ruben Östlund, the force majeure guy. And I was like, whoa, that is cool. I'd absolutely love to come and do that. And then the second after I thought that, I was like, but how? I mean, at that point, after force majeure, he could get any bloody actor in the whole goddamn world to come and do his film. So I was really excited and I was super, super prepared for that casting. But I was also prepared that it would not really lead to anything. But I, I prepared, I really did. And I remember then going to the casting and it, he's very thorough. So I think the casting was like probably three hours. And what he did was he didn't give me any scenes to read beforehand. What we did is he sat me down on a chair and then he taught me through the whole script. And then we did improvs of like five or six of the bigger scenes that are in there. And, you know, to sort of get to know the story of the square like that, to have him tell it to me and semi-livid in the room with him, I was just fucking blown away. And I remember coming home and I just threw my back down and I sat down on the couch and I screamed at my wife, if I ever fucking wanted anything in my professional life, it is this. It seemed like, I mean, he was such an inspiration to be with. It was so much fun. It was like, he has this tendency to just really fucking extract every little bit that's in there. And it's in a very fulfilling way. And that was also what it was like working with him on the movie. So it was just incredible. And I remember actually, he took me through the script and we did all these improvs. And then he said, hey man, great. I've got everything I want. But I said, I, I have actually prepared something because he'd asked me, he didn't send me any scenes, but he said, can everybody that comes to this casting do their own version of that speech that I give in the museum? Do you remember when I'm telling the audience about this work of art, what it is, and I try to explain them. And he said, can everybody that comes to the casting do that? And so I did. So he was about to send me on my way. I said, listen, I actually prepared that speech. Can I just do that for you as well? And so I did. So the whole thing where I stand there and I say, so this is a space where you can stand in there and you can just ask people for help. Can you, can you, I can't swim. Can you help me? Can I learn swimming from you? Can you just look after my dog for half an hour while I go to the dentist? My father just died. Um, can I talk to you for half an hour? I need someone to talk to. And he said that when I said that, he sort of thought that I revealed to him that I had understood on another level what that thing actually was. And he was quite moved by it. And I think that played a big part in, in getting the role. I mean, we basically kept that speech that I did, that he was almost about to miss because he was almost about to sort of send me on my way. It was just because I said, listen, I have prepared this. Do you, do you want to see it? And he said, oh, yeah, sure. And we did it in five minutes and, and we kept 
basically the whole thing in there as I did it. So that's, uh, that's really cool. You make it sound easy and enjoyable, but it was an arduous shoot. I mean, oh yes, it l- was. L- putting in perspective, Ruben loves to shoot a lot of takes. He, he, he's, I mean, there are, I think for instance, that scene, he will argue when I say this, saying that I'm exaggerating, but I do think that we were up to something like at least 80 or 90 takes of that. It went on forever. And it was tough also, because I mean, as you know, and as, as people that have seen the movie know, I'm in that movie a lot. It was like 70 days shoot. I think I was there for 68. And every day was like that. He really, really works you hard. And he's very, very demanding. He's very, he's got a bullshit detector like no one I've ever, if, 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 if you do something and he doesn't believe it, he'll pull you down to the monitor, he'll point it out to you, say, listen, that's good, that's good. That reaction I don't buy, that I don't buy, and that's good, but fix the other ones. And I actually sort of liked working like that because it was quite easy to see where he was, oh, yeah, sure, that doesn't, I mean, I don't buy it either. Really cool. But he always worked you like, uh, is there a little bit more something else in there? Or if we perhaps change the scene a little bit, could we get, I mean, so you were on your fucking toes all the time. And also, we were not only shooting stuff. I'd say probably every other or third night when we left set, we would meet and have dinner and do improvs of stuff that we would shoot next week. So it was like a constant thing that was just going on and we quarreled and we argued and we shouted at each other and we were not the best of friends all the time and also we loved each other and we liked it and and, and everything was but the kind of respect and trust that he showed me on that movie is beyond anything I've ever tried before and it's actually quite moving for me to talk about because to have someone actually say, listen, I've got this massive movie in my head and on a script in order for me to make my movie, I fucking need you to really deliver. Otherwise, this is going to fall apart. And to have someone to get into someone's mind like that and to get into him and, and to actually be able to deliver everything he needed to do his his work is just something that I'm super proud of. And I'm really affected by the fact that he was so inviting because he really lets you as an actor do your thing in there and have your say. And then at one point he'll say, okay, now we've got it. Now this is what we're shooting. Don't stray from this. Don't do improvs now. Now the scene is set, but now we keep working it till we get something really good. But he's very you feel very invited, I have to say. But you have to be somewhat robust as an actor to handle that because there is a lot of breaking down. Yes, and there was. And I remember days of, you know, coming home from that, falling apart on the floor and phoning my wife and saying, I can't do it anymore. I hate him. I want to go home. Can you phone someone else and get them to come and do the rest or whatever? There were absolutely days where I was a mess and in a state, but I made it out alive. I'm still here, so. Do you think a younger version of yourself could have handled it? I, uh, that's, it's such a, um, I, I, I don't, I don't fucking know if there was something that sort of fell into place or if I could have, um, 
The thing is that sometimes, you know, people have talked to me as if I fell down from the moon when I did that movie. But I was not a worse actor before that casting. Obviously, you grow when you do something like that. But it's not like that all of a sudden I made a pact with the devil and became this monster of an actor. I was already a really good one when I walked into that casting. The thing, obviously, here is that he actually managed to perhaps extract every little bit that's in there. So he really massaged that muscle in me and in a way where I really enjoyed it and also was exhausted and fucked up and everything. But but I, I, I really have a hard time answering that question. I don't know. But the thing that's also quite kind of funny is that if Ruben had needed a guy of 26, blonde hair, one foot five for the square, we would not be having this conversation right now. And that whole thing that came after the square, where it opened up so many doors internationally, probably wouldn't have happened either. Because this, going to Cannes and winning the Palm Door, opens up a lot of opportunity for you. So it's a bit of luck in the sense that I fitted the description. But it's also really cool to know that when someone put that task on my table, I actually had everything it took to deliver. The role that you play in the film of Christian, the director of a modern art museum in Stockholm, the process that Ruben employs very much blurs the line between yourself and the character. Would that be fair to say? Yeah. I mean, he wants you to produce nothing. He wants you to do no acting at all in the sense that he does not want you to, I mean, just do what is right here, right now in the situation. And don't try and smile about something if you don't, if you don't feel, I mean, that's why I say he's got a bullshit detector that's quite heavy because he sees it right away if you try to do something that's not really embodied. But I'd say your sort of emotional compass or whatever you put that out there and let someone else work that. I always have this thing where I don't sort of see myself so much as an interpreter of anything. I more sort of see myself as an instrument that I can just say to the director, please play this. And it's just my task to make sure that it's in tune or if he needs a detuned one, be detuned or if he needs all the higher octaves to be cut off, not play them. Or, I mean, do you know what I mean? But to sort of just be the best kind of instrument you can be, be exactly the instrument he needs to do what he wants to do. And when I say that, it sounds as if I just give myself over and let anybody... And I kind of like that as well. But I have also worked on projects where I've been like, I've realised that I like the dialogue of being invited in and okay let's try and use those notes for this and let's try and do this and this and and what I'm trying to say is that I like the idea of this instrument and I like that but I also have to say that I have been working on stuff where I was like no this is actually not what I meant when I say that I just like to be an instrument the thing that I enjoy most about my job is being part of of you know if this was a scene if what we're doing right here 
was a scene in a movie. Then we'd meet each other in the morning and the director would be there, the DP would be there, there'd be people there. And we'd start working it and we'll start saying, okay, we could do this or we could do that. Or at one point I get really angry and I go up and I make myself a cup of coffee and I refuse to talk to you even if it's an interview. Or, I mean, you know, come up with suggestions of how to... And, and that whole dialogue of doing all that, I really enjoy. I really enjoy the collaboration of the other actors and the director and the DP and, and whoever is in there, the stunt people, if it's a stunt scene or, you know, all that. I enjoy that. So to just be storyboarded and asked to stand in a corner and then leave at some point, I mean, that's not so much the instrument I want to be. Would it be fair to say that The Girl in the Spider's Web the big budget action thriller you shot soon after the square was then not quite as fulfilling artistically. Mm. Yes. I mean, the thing about that is like, it's so much more an action movie and it's kind of quite two dimensional characters, almost like he's a function more than he's like a person. But I do think that sometimes it can also be a challenge just to sort of see that and say, okay, so this is what they want from me now. I'm dark-haired, which I am in most things I do, but to be like totally blonde and have blue eyes, you don't have to play a bad guy. You just look, I mean, oh, I don't know. That's like saying everybody who's blonde and, and blue-eyed is a bad guy. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> You're that's in the wrong country, I mean. Clues. Yeah. Um, no, but, but what I mean, what happened with me when they did that to me and, and put those blue eyes in and that quite blonde hair, if I tried to also play a villain or be a villain underneath that, that would be cheese on cheese. So what it allowed was actually to sort of try and do something else because it was so set how he looked so you could try and, and investigate other stuff with the character. One of the roles that has made you a household name is that of Dracula in the recent BBC series. You mentioned that in the case of the girl in the spider's web, the blonde hair and the blue eyes helped you find your way into the character. I'm interested in what was it particularly that helped you become Dracula? Yeah. Well, I have to say here, I really do have a feeling it was very much the writing of Gates and Moffat. It was very well written and they had a sort of very distinct take on him. And it was a little bit, you know, just connecting the dots or going by the numbers. I remember thinking there have been so many Draculas and I was like, so how's... Ah. It's so iconic and you can actually only go wrong if you do it. And then I thought, well, the thing that's important is probably to sort of do what I just described I did in the square and just try and fucking embody it and, and just have it become me. And then it would be probably at least very original. And therefore I just try to sort of see if I could relate to it. And, and obviously, you know, sleeping for 400 years and feeding off people. I mean, all these things are just very hard to sort of, but it's not so different because it's basic needs in a way. I mean, he's just, what, what do you like? What, what, what's your thing, Dracula? And he would always say, well, what everybody likes. I mean, a nice conversation, a decent meal. And that would probably normally be something where if we did that, the conversation would be you and me and the meal would be something in front of us. If it was Dracula, the meal and the conversation would be the same thing. 
Um, <laughs> but, but, um, but I mean, still, it was just trying to sort of, you know, make sense of all these weird things that he does. But I, I, I had a feeling that just trying to connect it to something in myself and make it a need of my own. So it was also very much about that, you know, just do the situation as it is right here, right now. You've got this guy that you've invited down to Romania and now he's sitting there and you need him to write these letters and, and it's actually his own death sentence. So how do you do that without him noticing? So just really enjoy being in that room with those people in that situation. I think I thought if I tried to sort of do something to become this icon, then I'd probably go wrong. But if I tried to just put it inside me and embody it and just let my own little thing in there drive him, then it would become perhaps something true or real. Because it was important to me that he didn't become this sort of caricature or two-dimensional comic book kind of. I wanted him to become like a 360 thing. And the thing that helped there in the writing was also that I don't think in any other Dracula you got to spend so much time with him. You got to see a lot of Dracula in a lot of different situations. I mean, for a lot of other versions, he's lurking in the darkness and then he jumps out, he feeds off someone and then he's gone again. But here you got to be with him in, in so many different situations. And I think that's what I mean when I say going by the numbers, you know, just do this scene and then do this scene and then do this scene and then do this scene. And then when you've got them all, you've pieced together your Dracula. But there is a deafness to the performance because it's tonally a fine balance between being overly arch or comedic yeah, and still horrific. And I feel like that balance was very, very fine. I feel like you- That's really cool. I was worried about that, I have to say, because when I read it, I was like, this has to be fucking scary. I mean, we can't do, we're not going to do, you know, your- spoof Dracula and I was like so Stephen and Mark do we need five jokes on each page and they were like mm, yeah we don't know but let's do them and we'll just balance it and perhaps we'll lose some of them in editing but when we did it I was worried that we would be too funny and not scary enough but obviously there's also a quite scary element to people that go about such a horrible business in such a lighthearted way and, and, and always have a funny comment up their sleeve, even when they do horrendous stuff. So there's, there's a balance there. So um, I was worried at one point that we were bordering on spoof. I think in a way what we did with it was also a little bit like saying, you know, I actually don't want to kill people. I don't actually enjoy that. It's not that. It's just a fucking byproduct of what I do. I mean, people don't normally live through what I do, and I have to do it. And how can I live with myself? Well, I pretend it's fucking not happening, or I just go about it in a very sort of light manner. That's sort of how I approached it in a way. I was like, mm. I actually really enjoyed having Jonathan Harker there. He was my best bride yet, as I said to him. And I don't want you to die because I enjoy having you around. I, there's been no one here for 300 years. I've just been in a coffin. Why bother getting out of your coffin on a Tuesday afternoon, 1744 in November when it's dark? There's no one here. There's no one to talk to. There's no one to feed. Nothing to do. Now you're here. I start feeding off you and then you fucking go and die on me. Um, shit. 
that kind of, you know, caught up in that thing. So, so um, obviously he's the villain and all that, but it's like, I think we try to balance it like that to sort of say, it's more sort of his need to feed off people and also that it almost becomes a sexual thing for him to do that and, and get that kind of satisfaction that drives him. It's not in any way actually him enjoying people dying. The second they die, he can't feed off them anymore. Hmm. After the square won the prestigious Palm d'Or in Cannes and your phone started ringing off the hook, you, in the preceding 18 months, took on five feature films and two series. Yeah, I did. What was the best advice you'd received about how to venture into the world of Hollywood? I don't actually know if I got any advice. I, I remember thinking quite clearly, wow, so many interesting projects are being put forward to me right now. And I'm just going to use this momentum because it might, I mean, it's a very, in that sense, the business can be quite fluid. Or it's, it, now it's here, now it's gone. It might be that everybody is thinking, wow, that guy from the square, he's cool. We want to work with him. And it might be, I'm this month's flavor and next month is someone else. So I just remember thinking and saying to my wife, okay, all the projects that I think are interesting and have that appeal. And if they can, if I can just work all of them into my schedule, I'll fucking work nonstop just to get as much out of this as possible. And also I got greedy money-wise in terms of, I was like, whoa, if I actually do all these movies this year and that series and that, I can pay off all our debts, which I've done. So we owe nobody. And that's a thing that you've always wanted as an actor, I think. I mean, there's been so many times where I was like, well, how the fuck am I going to make rent this month? So to just not have to think about that has always been something that I thought is, I'm never ever going to achieve that. So when I started looking over it, and I said, okay, so Girl on the Spider's Web, The Last Premiere, Bay of Silence, um, Glass Room, and The Burned Orange Heresy. If you put all that together, that amount will be enough for us to get out of all the debts of... I, I, this is fucking boring, I know. But it's, but it's true. I thought that. I, I did the math and I was like... That would mean at the end of this year, we don't owe anybody any money. That became quite attractive to me as well. The opportunities you've received have then opened the door for you to work with some of the greats, Donald Sutherland, Mick Jagger, although not necessarily known for his acting, but most recently, Nicole Kidman, Ethan Hawke. In regards to Ethan, I read recently that when he was preparing for training day, he went back through all of Denzel Washington's earlier work to study him in order to, in his own words, not get acted off the screen. <laughs> and I'm just curious whether you're aware in the moment of the pedigree of the actor that you're engaging with or if you just see them as another character that you're interacting with on screen. No, I mean, for instance, Sutherland has been like uh, one of my idols for a very long time. And, and, and I think don't look now is probably top three on my list. Um, so I was very familiar with his work. Obviously there's not so much Jagger out there cause he's 
the musician more than he's the actor. So have I done... I, at this fall, it happened that The Undoing was on whatever it was on, exactly when Nicole was arriving. So I watched that. Um, but obviously I'd seen so many of her other movies. So, so no, no, I don't think I've actually ever done exactly that thing that you mentioned that Ethan's done. We hear of imposter syndrome. You didn't in any way feel intimidated? No. I, I, did I feel, did I feel intimidated? Was that intimidation or was that just... No, I don't think... I've, I wouldn't say that I was intimidated, but obviously it's like... The thing is, I mean, for instance, with Jagger, I was like, can you please sit me down in a chair before you introduce me to him because I might faint because um, I'd be starstruck or something. But the thing with him, for instance, was that I was on a phone call and I um, put the phone down and I turned around and he stood right in front of me and that was his first day on set. And... Just like half an hour earlier, I'd been talking to the director and I said to the director, when Mick comes, we need to talk about these things that we're shooting tomorrow. So I never ever said hello or anything. I just said, wait, great that you're here because we're shooting that scene tomorrow. And so it was just like, I just went straight into the whole working kind of thing. And in there, it's like everybody's, it's not like everybody's the same because obviously they aren't, but now... If I was sitting there thinking, wow, I'm in a scene with Mick Jagger and Donald Sutherland, I'd probably be in a big pile of problems because, I mean, you, you can't sit there and th you, then, you've, then you're not there. Then you're like Clay's thinking that's him and him. And in that situation, they're not. So if I'm thinking, that would be weird. And in that sense, I always manage to lose myself into the situation, which I think is important. And I never felt that anybody was trying to do anything awful or nasty or anything. I've actually only ever experienced that it was just, wow, they are really, really, really good at their job. And it's really just a pleasure working with them. But you seem to have very much been able to finely tune your own bullshit detector. I noted that in terms of the Academy Awards, you said it was the ugliest place you'd seen on earth. Yeah. Um, it's, it's like, I think you imagine it to be like this Cinderella going to the party, of the, but it's not, it's like a mall or something. I'm not sure. It was not, I didn't, I didn't sort of, listen, I think the thing about the Oscars was that if we'd won, <laughs> I probably would have said something quite different. Because to get that close and lose is just, oh, my God. You, you are a competitive person and you've been brutally honest about it. I noted in the lead up to the final award ceremony in Cannes, you'd been reading some of the international press that had named you as the firm favourite for the Best Male Actor Award. Yeah, I, I lost my mind in Cannes somehow. I, I actually went there thinking, is that? even exist or is it like you know the lunar landing that never took place just filmed out in a hangar somewhere or so, so i was like whoa i've never been there before so i went there and i was there for 10 days and you know the hype starts to build and i remember one thing that kept being said was that your film is amazing but it's not going to win as a film 
because it's too funny and it's never a funny film that wins in Cannes, but you'll definitely get one of the awards. And that sort of opened up the thing of, you know, winning for best actor. And then I started reading the predictions that it might actually, that they were like, some of them were saying, it could be him. And I started fucking believing it. And so we got the call on the last day, because you get the call if you should come to the ceremony or not. And I was like, fuck, it could be. And um, and then it didn't happen. And I was so, I was really, I'm so surprised actually now that I was so disappointed. But I was, I was, re- and I remember phoning my agents and they were like, can you stop fucking around? I mean, from our point of view, being your salespersons, this couldn't have played out any better. Everybody will watch this movie now. Everybody watches the movie that wins and can. You're all over it and you're so good in it. You've got a great playing age. You've got good language skills. You can carry a film for two and a half hours and you've got 25 years of experience as an actor. I mean, you are a very bankable kind of guy and we can sell you in a way you won't believe after this so don't do that because nobody ever goes and watches the film just because someone won for best actor in that film people will what everybody will watch this movie so don't worry about it but i was like i was like um i was really really mad about it but you know then half a year went by and i won the european film award for best actor and i wouldn't swap it for the other one what happened at the after party? Um, at Cannes. Well, the, well, the stupid thing was that I, I was so upset about it. And, and then Ruben came back from the press conference. Um, and he was across the room and I saw him and he'd been amazing. He got up on stage and got the award and said, I share this with you, Clace. I mean, I'm so fucking thankful for everything you did for this movie. I share this with you. But that was not good enough for me. Um, so I saw him across the room and then I was like, whoa, because I've done stupid stuff when I was in a, in a not very good mood and quite drunk, got in fights and shit like that. And then I thought, this is not the place to do that. It's not the place to go over there and say, can I have a look at that palm door, please? Tear it in two and say, this is my share or something. Or start beating him up or whatever. I, I don't know. I just realized this thing is going on now inside me that I might do something stupid. I need to get myself out of here. So I left the party of my life. Well, I was like, I'm the lead of the film that fucking won the palm door. And I left at quarter past 10 or something. You've said that you ask your agents often to not send any of the negative reviews. Yes. Is that a problem in that you feel you haven't built resilience or you're just trying to surround yourself with- No, it's because you you get to, I get too affected by it. I get too annoyed by the bad ones and I get too overexcited about the good ones. And I, I, um, it's just not in any way helpful for me as an actor to read these things. I ask them to send the ones that are, that have seen the work and 
mainly the good ones. <laughs> but I mean, the ones where you sort of have a feeling, okay, they have actually watched the movie and watched the work and see, okay, because it's sometimes really nice, just like going down and looking at the monitor and watching, okay, this is not working, that's working. That's, I mean, it's nice to sort of have someone say, that really fucking works. If that was intentional, they pulled it off. But I have gotten quite good at blocking it out and, and not reading it. I get too, especially the bad ones, I get really, really upset about them and sad. And, and you know, the thing is also like, sometimes it's perhaps it's like a year's work. I mean, with prep and the first time you read the script and you start getting into it and then you start getting closer and closer to it. And then with, for instance, like Ruben's film, it was like, it was a year of my life. It's not just like something you do on an afternoon and then it's, I mean, you put yourself out there and you really work like a fucking horse to get it right. And then someone goes and watches the movie, spends half an hour writing, blah, 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 and that's it. And you're like, whoa, man, can you, how is this respectful? And that is how it works. So that is respectful. But it's just like... I can also sometimes hear myself after watching a movie that I didn't like. So fucking hell, that was bad. That was not, I mean, and I do the same thing because it didn't appeal to me and I didn't think the actors were very good in it. Or, I mean, that happens. But to have that written about yourself and read it after having put yourself in there is, it just becomes disproportional somehow. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And therefore I think it's... uh I just try to avoid it. Just in closing, Clace, you've performed your monologue, The Evil, over 300 times in Danish and almost 100 times in English. Yes. As an actor, is that an anchor point for you yeah. that you return to? Yeah, exactly. And, and do you see yourself returning to it in the future? Yeah. I've, I've had, um, I've been doing it over and over again. And, and these past years, I've done it in Berlin, in Deutsches Theater. Um and right now I am actually working on a filmed version of the monologue as well, trying to put that together with a director and a producer, see if we can, because I don't actually believe in, I'm not a big fan of filmed theatre. So we're trying to sort of see what we can do. So yes, it is exactly what you say. It feels like it's an anchor point and it's very much, it feels like staying healthy. It feels like exercising the actor muscle that is at the core of everything. It's like getting back to the roots, going back to everything that I... Because, I mean, filming, can it sort of takes you astray sometimes, and then you go and do this, and then you go and do that. But to get back to basics of what you as an actor are, and getting in touch with the strings at the core of your instrument. That's what I use this one for. Because it's impossible to get up on stage and stand there in front of an audience for an hour and ten minutes and not put yourself in there. I mean, you have to fucking give it your all. Even if you've done it a ton of times, I always have to prepare. I have to get myself ready for it. It's it's like, I mean, you can't run a marathon and start training for it three days ahead of it. 
you have to get yourself ready for it. So, and I think there's also something else in terms of, you know, being a storyteller that I get quite close to. Because on, on, let's say this was a movie that we do this interview as a part of a movie, then we come here on the day and we do this and we've rehearsed it and we do everything we can to be right here in this moment, in this situation right now, and then we go and do something else tomorrow or perhaps this is the only scene we have in the movie. And then someone else takes what we've done and piece it together and tell the story. On stage, even if your part is small in a play with a lot of people, or as in this one with The Evil, where I'm the only one there, you have to have an awareness of what part of the story you carry. And obviously with a one-man China monologue, you have to have an awareness of the whole structure of the whole thing, of, you know, getting the dynamics of everything right. Because you can't, it's not like just rambling. You'll lose people if you do that. You need to sort of make sure you get the arcs and put it out there so that that bit here in the beginning connects 35 minutes down the line to the right place so that there's an arc there. And, and that kind of storytelling, I think, helps me as an actor also with my film or television acting, because it's just an awareness of the whole thing. And I'm not saying you can't do without it, because I think there are so many brilliant actors that don't do stage work. It's just, I find it really helpful. Yeah, but it really is about cleaning out the pipes and adjusting the instrument, sort of tuning it, hoping that the instrument that someone wants next time is a tuned one. Hmm. Otherwise... Uh, do that other thing I talked about a bit earlier, detune it or take some strings off it or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> It's a brilliant insight into the craft of storytelling, Clace, and how you approach it. And I, I just appreciate you sharing honestly today. Well, thank you so much for... I actually enjoy talking about these things. It's quite an inspiration to me to talk about these things. So, Thanks, Clace. Thank you for having me. Nordic Portraits is a series by me, Ben Catford. The music was composed by Nina Liu and the visual identity by Copenhagen-based studio Frame. To learn more about today's guest and all the others from this season, visit nordicportraits.net. You can also follow us on Instagram and remember to rate and subscribe on iTunes so we can get the word out. Thanks for listening.